Hey, welcome to the podcast of the Kelly Cutrera Show for Friday, January 15th. We're going to get all ethical on you with bioethicist Carrie Bowman and talk about vaccine passports and the possible triaging that they will have to do at hospitals because of the increasing numbers of COVID-19. But first... It is day two of the stay-at-home order. A state of emergency has been issued by the province because the COVID numbers are climbing, uh, especially the UK variant, which we are going to get to. There are 14 more cases. Likely there could be more because we don't have our lab tests calibrated to spot the UK variant everywhere. So that's kind of problematic. So uh, Ford is saying, you know, just stay home. We stay a la maison. Thank you very much. En français. All right. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday or Monday, rather, said 20 million Canadians could be fully vaccinated by April and June. And that's some hopeful news. Public Services and Procurement Minister Anita Anand's office later clarified, oh, wait a minute. That figure is dependent on other vaccines beyond Moderna and Pfizer being able to uh, get the go ahead by Health Canada for use in Canada. So more details came to light yesterday, and it was in a press conference where Major General Danny Fortin, who is the uh, military commander leading Canada's COVID-19 vaccine logistics, gave us some hopeful news with the COVID-19 vaccine, and here's what he had to say. Based on approved vaccines, we anticipate 20 million doses for the second quarter. We continue to work with our uh, public services and Procurement Canada colleagues. And with many and with manufacturers to maximize the vaccine availability so that all Canadians, um, uh, as many Canadians as possible, can be safely immunized as rapidly as possible. How rapidly? This is going to start in April. It's called the ramp up phase. Uh, He goes on to explain. The quantity of doses arriving in Canada is anticipated to average more than a million doses a week for both currently approved vaccines starting in April. This will signal our transition into this ramp-up phase. The logistics planning team uh, at uh, the agency is working with federal, provincial, territorial, and indigenous partners to align forecasted vaccine availability with uh, the immunization capacity in the provinces and territories. Okay, we heard yesterday from the Pharmacies Association that they are set to go. They would help administer the vaccine, and they can do large numbers on a weekly basis. So that's some great news for us. But think about if you had to work with uh, in a hospital situation, you're a frontline healthcare worker. And, you know, we're starting to hear that needles are going into arms, but barely barely 1% of the population has received at least one shot of the Pfizer and Moderna uh, products. And if you are a doctor that works with COVID patients near around COVID patients, and you don't have your shot right now, but you're hearing that people in Toronto hospitals like um, people that work in administration, people that are on mat leave, uh, maybe in some cases uh, higher ups like CEOs are getting vaccines. That's going to make you pretty upset. We're going to welcome Dr. Alan Drummond to the set, uh, to the show rather. He is uh, an ER doctor from Perth, Ontario. And yesterday you tweeted something out that got Chris Creston, our producer of the show's um, interest. Do you want to go ahead and tell us what you tweeted out, doctor? So it, it's a bit of an uncomfortable situation for me because, you know, you, you put yourself out there, you make yourself kind of exposed and vulnerable, and, and I don't want people to get the wrong idea. But basically, I, you know, I was basically saying that I'm 66. I've been recently diagnosed with heart disease. Uh, I work in a, in a hospital, a rural hospital, that um, does see COVID patients, not, not like Toronto, to be sure, but that we do see COVID patients. 
uh, and that I'm at higher risk, and yet I'm not going to leave my job uh, because it is my job. Um, and I feel kind of vulnerable. I feel kind of neglected. I feel that I deserve a safe work environment, and that I deserve uh, an opportunity to be vaccinated. And to be very clear, it isn't about me. Uh, it's about my colleagues, uh, both physicians and emergency nurses. It's about my colleagues who are paramedics in our rural community who have uh, seemingly taken a back seat to this. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. When the first wave came along, we were sort of, we, we looked at what was happening in northern Italy and, and in New York City, and we were enjoined, you know, to the battle against this novel virus, and we knew it could be dangerous. Um, uh, we were given inadequate uh, personal protective equipment, told to wear a single mask for 30 patient encounters or a shift, inadequate medical direction, inadequate ventilators, inadequate negative pressure rooms to contain infectious patients, uh, and nobody shirked their responsibility. Uh, you know, that's our job. So we, you know, despite the, the drawbacks and the vulnerabilities, you know, we did our work and we did it well. Here we are in the second wave where, you know, numbers are spiraling out of control. People are, you know, coming into the hospital, ICU, uh, death rates are rising. Uh, and now there's a vaccine that can afford us some really meaningful protection as we go about our day-to-day -day work. Uh, and somehow we've been left behind yet again to uh, to fight the good fight, but, you know, without the protection we need. You know, it's uh, it's been pretty disconcerting lately. Uh, you know, we're getting all a little bit war-weary, to be sure. We're getting mixed messaging from, you know, provincial governments. And, and what kind of messaging are you leader. getting? Pardon me? What kind of messaging are you getting? Give well, us an I mean, idea of what you know, you're hearing. Let's be straight. Uh, you know, we, here we are, this federation of 10 provinces and the territories, and there's different ways of doing things, whether you live in Alberta, Ontario, or Quebec. Uh, you know, we are exhorted to work, and yet our politicians, our public health officials, our administrative types are getting vaccinated while frontline workers, you know, sit in the dark waiting for some word of, of when we might, you know, potentially see a vaccination. And I think that's probably the biggest problem of all, the lack of communication, lack of transparency with frontline workers as to when they can expect to uh, be vaccinated. Should you um, do you think that the government should be uh, asking people to, um, you know, if you could make it in, travel into the city where the vaccine is located? Would you be willing to drive in well, for I mean, it? Or yeah, do you think I mean, we're look, we're all for we all get this. I, every emergency physician and, 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 and nurse in this in this province understands that there's a, a greater priority for vulnerable communities and vulnerable individuals such as those in long term care, those that are homeless those who live in congregate settings, uh, indigenous communities, we all get that. Uh, and we're all for getting those people vaccinated first and foremost. No argument. But that argument uh, doesn't hold water when we see psychiatrists uh, doing Zoom meetings, uh, doctors on maternity leave, doctors on the third or fourth tier of medicine, like radiologists and, and rehabilitation specialists, uh, being vaccinated by virtue of the fact that they're associated with the uh, a university hospital. So that makes no sense whatsoever when frontline workers who are actually seeing COVID patients are denied vaccination, while people who may not see a COVID patient throughout this entire pandemic uh, are, are getting not one vaccination, but two. Um, and that's ethically uh, problematic, uh, I think, uh, to be sure. So yeah, by all means, let's take the high priority patients, but let's make this uniform. And let's also acknowledge the sacrifice 
and dedication and commitment of uh, emergency physicians and nurses and paramedics across this province, both rural and urban, by you know acknowledging that by treating them with some degree of respect and at least giving them some sense of when they might be vaccinated, because right now we haven't heard a word. And you're just waiting, like the rest of us, to find out when we're going to be vaccinated. And let's face it, you're not like the rest of us. You're working with people that could make you very sick, and you're necessary. If you get sick, then who fills in for you? Like, what's your backup like when you're talking about uh, working in a more remote community? I know that Perth isn't that remote, but, but it is a smaller town. Well, that's precisely the issue. I mean, the Ottawa hospital may have 90 emergency physicians on their staff rota. Somebody gets sick or quarantined, they can fill in the gap. You know, our hospital is very limited in terms of uh, manpower. Uh, One of us gets sick or quarantined, either a physician or a nurse, and our entire system grinds to a halt. You know, rural communities, in fact, emergency medicine is a very vulnerable service on a good day. Canada is short 2,000 emergency physicians. We are a vital resource. Nobody gets into a COVID ICU these days without being assessed by a paramedic, an emergency nurse, and an emergency physician in a continuum of care. So, you know, if you cripple, uh, you know, the ground response to a COVID patient, that's going to sort of end up rippling through the entire system. And we are vulnerable. Um, and, you know, again, we're not asking for to queue jump here, but we are asking to have our role in the management of COVID patients and keeping our community safe recognized. I want to thank you for bringing this to our attention, Dr. Drummond. I think uh, a lot of us that are in the GTA lose sight of the fact that uh, the province is much bigger than it is, and it's it's good to know what other people are dealing with in the medical profession. You know, we, we're all appalled at hearing that people that are staying at home, uh, people that uh, are doing most of their work on Zoom, received that vaccine if anyone should be turning it down it should be people in the medical profession that have other colleagues in the medical profession that need it more that is an ethical thing that uh i guess each person needs to search their their soul for but i think the answer is clearly there the right and wrong answer i appreciate your time you're welcome take care you too stay safe dr alan drummond er doctor from perth ontario just talking about what it's like for rural doctors we're in day two of the stay at home order hopefully you can adhere to it as much as possible uh if you're an essential worker be careful we know that that uk variant is out there and it's far more contagious than um the current covid virus that we've been dealing with the current strain of it um so we'll talk about that a little bit later on but i want to welcome to the program carrie bowman who is a bioethicist with the University of Toronto and uh, is on the show quite frequently. And uh, we want to thank you for your time. You're just incredibly generous with it. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about something that was announced yesterday. And I think a lot of people feel pretty good about it. It is the fact that our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, announced that his government has no plans to implement vaccine passports. I just want to play a clip from his, his statement about it. I think it's an interesting idea, but uh, I think it is also fraught with challenges. I think uh, the indications that the vast majority of Canadians are looking to get vaccinated uh, will get us to a good place without having to uh, to take uh, more extreme measures that could have uh, real divisive uh, impacts on, on community and country. Why are vaccine pa- passports an ethical hot potato? Because some people say they're necessary for safety. Well, they could be, but, you know, they they do create kind of an in-group and an out-group, and that's always of great concern. Um, You know, who would who would have access first, um, you know, and, and, you know, if if a person is fundamentally opposed to the vaccine, 
or vaccines, plural, uh, they actually have a right to that. They have a right to say, I don't want that. I don't want that injected into my body. And then they would be in a position where their life could be, you know, a little more or maybe significantly more limited because of the position um, that they have and the choice that they have made. So it's tough. But look, as I agree with our prime minister, I, I, I think, and, and, you know, it looks like the vast majority, we don't know, we're looking at numbers, not attitude yet, but it looks like the vast majority of Canadians will want to be vaccinated and hopefully will be. But look, here's the thing. Vaccine passports are likely going to happen, even though our government says uh, they may not be official and they may not be in the hands of the government. But restaurants, sports venues absolutely travel. I mean, it'll probably start with airlines and then arrival in all kinds of countries. And likely, uh, would not surprise me, including the United States, uh, there will have to be that. So there really will be, I believe, some form of vaccine passport, but it won't be in the hands of the government. It'll be private. Oh, really? Okay, so if basically if you want to get, your, get on your next vacation, you'll have to, you know, invest in proving and, and invest in, in getting one of these passports. So that that's somebody that stands to make a lot of money off of our safety and our willingness to to uh, partake in, in certain um forms of entertainment, I guess. Well, it will. And, it, you know, for people that are really, really opposed to the vaccine or just plain don't want it or don't feel safe with it, it'll be very problematic. Now, I, I, I'm speculating, but, you know, when you look at some of the Caribbean nations, um, they may very well say, you know, as a draw for tourism, that everyone coming in here has been vaccinated and needs a vaccine passport. Um, and then what may happen is, is Canadians' lives will be more and more limited in terms of what they can do. But, you know, is the government going to say you absolutely have to have it? They're not. But it still doesn't close the door, as you can see. And what do we mean by passport? I don't think we're going back to those old yellow cards, if, if anyone even remembers those. You know, I, I do, actually. And, and I'm not yeah. that old, but I I, don't, I think they were still updating them, honestly, in like 20, 2004. I know, I know, and I have them because I work overseas. But look, right. I, I'm I'm assuming we're gonna we're it's gonna be electronic at this point. Um, and you know, I can easily imagine visas not being issued and be, have having problems if you land somewhere without them. And again, I say it will not surprise me if the United States doesn't adopt this. Well, that's we'll interesting. See. If our closest number member, uh, like closest neighbor, adopts it, I uh, and I know. We don't adopt it. Adopts it for travel, though. Adopts it for travel. Okay. So, you know, because I, I think our government gets to really sit back on this one and say, you know, we don't we do not do it. We see ethical problems with it. But but market forces are going to probably create it anyway. So, yeah, we will see. Uh, you know, well, and I, look, I feel for, I, I, I'm pro-vaccine, but look, I feel for the people, honestly, that simply don't want it or are going to refuse it because the day could come where, you know, it's really going to have an effect on on how they can run their lives. Let me ask you about the vaccine, um, because the Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada and the National Advisory Committee of Immunization and the World Health Organization now agree that it's possible to safely space out the initial booster shots of Pfizer uh, and Moderna vaccines by up to 42 days. The manufacturers are saying, yeah, we did the science on 21 and 28 days. And we know that there have been reports, I think it's seven people in a Montreal long-term care home, that got the first shot of Pfizer 
which it puts you at about 52% efficacy. 21 days later, they didn't get when they uh, they didn't get the booster when they should have. And then uh, a week later, they find out they have COVID and family members are livid about it. Mm-hmm. Is this something ethically we can play around with? Like when we have the actual science and the proof, should we be messing around with a longer, um, a longer booster interval? Yeah, you know, good ethics is really grounded in good science. So you really, to to make good ethical decisions, your starting point is what does the evidence tell us? I've stayed out of this debate because, you know, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an immunologist, so you know, but I, I can read and I can think. So, but but really, we really do have to look to what the evidence says. And what really tips the balance is, are we putting anyone at any risk? And if we, we really are, uh, then decisions should be made in that way. Dr. Brown, uh, when he introduced the modeling on, I think it was Tuesday uh, morning, mm-hmm. uh, was talking about a very difficult decision that doctors in ICU rooms are going to have to get ready to make. And I just want to play the clip uh, from that, and then we'll get your reaction to what they're being asked to do now. We will have to confront choices that no doctor ever wants to make and no family ever wants to hear. They will be choices about who will get the care they need and who will not. There'll be choices about who receives oxygen or is transported to hospital. Decisions we are already seeing being forced on ambulance crews in California where the virus has spread widely. And I want to emphasize that the choices will affect all patients needing intensive care, whether it's patients who have a heart attack, who've been in a motor vehicle accident, who have COVID-19, or any other cause. So it's a reality now, because a memo went out on Wednesday outlining the protocol to prepare ICU physicians to implement triage when instructed by the Critical Care Command Center. Uh, in the province. And there's no start date yet, but they are saying, get ready for this. Dr. Warner uh, from Michael Guerin Hospital said, I I, don't, I haven't been trained for that. Have you ever been trained in, in a situation where uh, triage would come into play like this? You know, I, I myself have worked in critical care for a lot of years, and I've never, I, triage can be defined in different ways, but triage with, with very, very limited beds, this is really the first time that we're seeing this, um, uh, you know, on this scale. And, you know, it looks like we're going to have some provincial variation on this. But what it looks like, if we're speaking of Ontario, um, you know, the the most important criteria, which I'm going to say I'm very supportive of from an ethical point of view, um, the most important point of view, sorry, would be to to simply focus on the person's chances of survival, not looking at their age, not looking mm-hmm. at their, their ability or disability. But from a medical point of view, what are the chances of this person surviving this ICU admission? And here's a second criteria. Some COVID patients actually need a long time in critical care. So if, in fact, it looks like a patient may need a month plus, that's a fair criteria. We have to be so careful we don't interface with with age discrimination or people with disabilities saying, you know what, this person's frail or, or something of that nature, when in fact a person may be frail because they've been living successfully and happily with, with a disability uh, for many, many years. So there's really the ethical challenge. Yeah, uh, but they're saying if you cannot foresee them living past 12 months, 
then that's where you make your decision. And that that would be a very hard decision <sighs> yeah. to make and a hard thing to to actually uh surmise even if you are a doctor uh when you're in a situation where you, you know, have to make you, a snap you need decision. You a crystal ball for that. Yeah. yeah. 12 months is very much a challenge. 12 months is a long time from a medical point of view. It's a really and you know 12 months in all of our lives is a long time in terms of what's going to be. That's a tough one and hopefully it, you know it will be shortened. But the other thing we need is a deliberative process where the physician, because a physician's duty is really to his or her patient without question. So you need a process. You need a group review of this. So the fact that there will be protocols, I think, is very, very um, heartening. Um, one thing that worries me a little bit is, you know, with the hospital so far, with the vaccination rollout, they kind of, many of them, you know, put their own interpretation on, on the ethics of this and, you know, mm -hmm. began to give it to a lot of staff that I believe never should have had it when people are dying in long-term care facilities. So, you know, protocols, they're not laws, you know, right? They're protocols. So let's hope they would be adhered to. But I'd be very opposed to anything that involved age discrimination or discrimination against people with any form of disability. When I think about this, you know what stands out to me is, that, you know, COVID, and we know this, has really shown, it, it's exposed our weaknesses in just so many different areas uh, you know, not just medically, but it really shows a weakness in training, doesn't it? Because if this is about a, a situation where you have to make decisions and triage where we've got um, mass patients coming into, you know, ICU, that, that means our doctors are not prepared for any kind of traumatic situation, whether it be a global disaster, like something that happens in an environmental disaster or a terrorist situation. I mean, you know, this pandemic is really showing that we might have to reevaluate how we're training. Yeah, no, I would agree with that because Canada, you know, we may have awful weather, but we, we, we absolutely don't have a lot of disasters. We really don't. I mean, especially compared to the Americans, um, you know, we really, really don't. And, and so even World War II, we didn't have a direct attack, you know, on the country or anything like that. So we, we actually have very little experience with this. You know, I would say medical ethics is pretty good at the bedside in terms of patient care. There's a huge weakness when it gets into the big, big, utilitarian concepts. This is, you know, resource allocation. We've never really had a mature ethical conversation on this. And I think it's very important that we do. And, you know, we have to live with the values that we accept as Canadians and believe in as Canadians, where we're not going to discriminate and we're going to have a fair society. So that's our challenge. Doctor, I want to thank you for your time and have yourself a very safe weekend. Yes, thank you. Best wishes to you. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. It's just a portion of what we do live every day on 640 Toronto Global News Radio. If you can join us between nine and noon, we'll talk to you then. Have a good one.